Hebrews, and uh, let's turn over to Hebrews chapter 4, Hebrews chapter 4, and uh, if uh, you're a guest this morning, um, and even if you've been here a lot of times, we are going to share the Lord's Supper together at the end of the service. You may want to read through this just to, to know whether you should participate or what you need to do to be ready to participate as these great reminders of who the Lord Jesus is, um, our past, the bread, and the cup. Um, we've been in this chapter, this will be our third week, and it's all about rest, uh, rest that we've sung about, rest that we've talked about in the uh, first part of the service here. It's the rest that we find in Christ, where we have measured up and we know the living God, and uh, we're rightly related to Him, and therefore we can trust His providence, we can trust His redemption, we can even trust His work in creation, and we can trust that there's going to be a grand consummation one day, which we loosely refer to as heaven. I want us to jump down to verses 9 and 10 uh, one more time. Because there's a word that is used there in verse 9 that has all kinds of connotation attached to it that I'm not too sure that we're super familiar with and what the Scriptures say and how it's culturally used in the church and how that should land in our hearts. And I think it's a big deal. So let me read verses 9 and 10. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. In fact, let me read 11 because this is the encouragement. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. The word I want to look at is the word Sabbath. The word Sabbath. Um, this is the first time that it's actually used after Jesus' life and ministry. And uh, there's all kinds of ways that this, again, pops up. So, four questions I want to ask and answer this morning. What was the Sabbath? Number two, are followers of Jesus Christ, are you and I, since Christ's resurrection, are we commanded to obey the Sabbath? If yes, what does that look like? What day of the week is it? Is it the same as for the people of Israel? If no, what does it mean to enter and live in this Sabbath rest that this verse calls us to live in? And number four, is Sunday the Sabbath for followers of Jesus, which so many teach? In fact, if you look at many of the catechisms, many of the ways of teaching the truths about who God is, you'll find this as one of their emphases. We use the New City Catechism. Let me show you what it says in question number 10. You'll remember a catechism uses a question and an answer along with a verse to teach truth. And so in this part, it's going through the Ten Commandments. It says, what does God require in the Fourth and Fifth Commandments? The answer... The fourth, that on the Sabbath day we spend time in public and private worship of God, rest from routine employment, serve the Lord and others, and so anticipate the eternal Sabbath. 
How much of that comes out of the scriptures? Well, let's look. Let's trace this thing down and see. I'm not saying that that's evil. I'm not saying it's bad. But does it have some connotations which may not be particularly helpful to us? Um, Let's just look at it. You're going to need a Bible that you can flip through fast because we're going from Genesis to Revelation this morning. And, uh, and so, if uh, electronically, you, a lot of you are quicker at that than others, but if you're not real familiar with the Bible, just grab the pew, Bible out of the pew in front of you and follow along on the page number. So let's go back to the beginning, Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. Before I read these, let me just ask for God to do what He alone can do here this morning. How about that? So let's pray together. Uh, Spirit of the living God, uh, man, you are so good. It's your expertise. You do it in such a holy way to take these verses that you have caused writers through the centuries to write that reveal who you are as God and what it means for us to live in relationship with us. Uh, You're just the one who can turn light bulbs on and help us to see things, and not just in the cognitive realm of our being, but but also in the application realm. And so we we look to you to do that today, and thank you for your kindness in doing it. And it's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, Genesis chapter 2. We're back in the beginning. Uh, Let me just read the first three verses. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their host. By the seventh day, God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Do you think he's trying to make a point here, by the way? I mean, you see the repetition here? Aren't you glad that God knows how to deal with slow people like me? Verse 3, then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because he rested from all his work which God had created and had made. And so we see that God rested on the seventh day. He set it apart as a different kind of day than the first six days in which he had created things. And he didn't rest because he was tired. He rested because Everything that he had planned, he had formed and brought into existence. So he didn't rest because he needed the rest, um, but there is something going on here, even for the sake of people that he had created, most specifically Adam and Eve, in this particular context, before it goes on to the human race. And I think here's part of what he's doing. He is setting a rhythm of life for people of a seven-day week. The seven-day week is established by God. And there's a rhythm to it. I mean, why is there 24 hours in a day? Why, why are there seven days in a week? Why not 10? Why don't we use the decimal system? Or the foot system, 12, or I don't know. Why? Why is there seven? Well, we know, as the Babylonians later figured out, even as the Jews were told when they came out of Egypt, it has to do with the moon, and it has to do with the sun. And so we have these regular routines. It gets more dark and light, and so the 24-hour day is established. So, so who created all of this? Who set this rhythm? Did the Egyptians? 
Did the Assyrians? Did the Babylonians? Did the Hebrews? Did the Brits? Did the Iranians? Did the Americans? The Mexicans? The Chinese? What'd you say, Vivian? God set this in motion. God is the one who established a week as a rhythm for life. This is something that is established by God. And whether people like it or not, when they celebrate a seven-day week, there's an acknowledgement of God. Of God. There's a second thing, I think, going on here. And if you go back to verse 26 of chapter 1, then God said, let us make man in our own image according to our own likeness and let him rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so God creates Adam and Eve in his image. And I want to suggest to you that in fact, the six days of work and the seventh day of rest is part of the way he created us to live in his image and likeness. It's a way to live consistent with him. And so ruling in the image and likeness of God includes working six days and resting on the seventh. So notice a couple things before we move on here. A seven-day week and resting on one day a week is, is a touchstone to God. It is the rhythm that he says he created us to live in. Let me ask you a question that I don't intend to be a trick question. But did Adam and Eve work six days and then rest the first week of their life? They what? They rested and then they worked six days. And so after God created Adam and Eve, what's the first thing he told them to do? Rest. Rest on the seventh day with him. And then they worked the next six days. And I think there's something going on here that can easily be lost. You see, God is such a God that he doesn't want us to work and recover from our work and rest. He's a God who wants us to rest and function out of that rest and work. And he set this in motion with Adam and Eve. Well, where is the word Sabbath in all of this? Well, you won't find it. You'll find the Hebrew root word, Sabbat, there for the word rest. But where is the word Sabbath? Well, we have to go forward um, some before we find the word Sabbath. And, uh, and so we're going to look at three passages that emphasize the whole point of the Sabbath. So go over to Exodus, Exodus chapter 16. Here's kind of three places that capture uh, the Sabbath in the Old Testament. So let me give you some context here. 
Exodus 14, God brings the people of Israel across the Red Sea. Uh, They walk through on dry land. Uh, They turn around, and Pharaoh, who's pursuing them and all his armies, gets swallowed up in the sea. In chapter 15, we have the song of Moses declaring the greatness of who God is. Uh, Towards the end of that chapter, they've been a few days, there's no water. The water that's there is bitter. God turns the bitter water into sweet water. It's been a few days, their food is running out. They begin to grumble and complain uh, to Moses and Aaron in 16 verse 2. So would you bring us out here for to die and uh, never mind all the miracles that he had done? And, uh, and so, in the midst of all that, look at 16, verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. Now jump over to verse 22. Now on the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one. When all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, then he said to them, this is what the Lord meant. Tomorrow is a Sabbath observance, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil and all that is left over put aside to be kept until morning. So they put it aside until morning as Moses had ordered, and it did not become foul, nor was there any worm in it. Remember what happened, just, just for a moment, remember what happened if they collected too much on the other, uh, other six days of the week, five days of the week? It, if you gathered it and tried to keep it till the next day, it would turn rancid and the worms would be in it. Uh, communicating to them, trust me for your daily bread which the Lord incorporates into our prayer, right? Give us this day, our daily bread. But on the sixth day, they were to gather twice as much because God wanted to set aside the seventh day as a different kind of day. And sure enough, it did not spoil, and there were no worms in it. Verse uh, 24, so they put it aside until morning as Moses had ordered. It did not become foul, nor was there any worm in it. Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it. But on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. Now, this is the first mention of the word Sabbath in the Bible. And, and here we see Israel has been redeemed out of slavery and, uh, and God is, is uh, seemingly getting them on track to function in the rhythm that he has designed people to function in. A rhythm and a way of ruling that was lost because they were slaves. When you're a slave, you can't set the rhythm for your life. And when you're a slave, you can't dictate what happens to the people underneath you. And so here he begins to put this in place. It's such a big deal that it becomes one of the Ten Commandments. Go over to Exodus chapter 20. Beginning in verse 8. 
is the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. In other words, it's a day different. It's set aside. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And so it seems that what God is doing here is he is restoring the people of Israel back to the rhythm and the way of ruling that he had originally designed in Genesis chapter 2 at the very beginning of creation. Now go over to Deuteronomy chapter 5, and the Ten Commandments are repeated there 40 years later as they get ready to enter into the promised land. Deuteronomy chapter 5. And let's begin there in verse 12. Deuteronomy 5, verse 12. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your cattle, or your sojourner who stays with you, so that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. That's ruling in the image and likeness of God. Verse 15, though, gives us a new reason why to celebrate the Sabbath. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, And the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. And so here we're given another reason why they were to celebrate the Sabbath. And it was to be a weekly reminder of the Lord rescuing them from slavery and bringing them into a place of freedom where they could live in the rhythms that God designed them to live in and to live ruling over their own life and ruling over those under them in a way that God designed them, and they need rest. Everybody needs rest. Now, you may be familiar that the consequences for breaking the Sabbath were, ouch, I mean like death, And there's at least one time in the scriptures where that was actually carried out. Why are the consequences so great for violating the Sabbath? Well, I can speculate and say that God doesn't want his people to live like slaves. You've been redeemed from slavery, don't live like a slave. You're going to mock me that I can't provide for you? You see, this whole thing was a way of them worshiping God and recognizing He set the rhythm for their life. He's the one who designed them to rule in His image and likeness. And man, always remember, you were saved out of that. You're saved out of that. 
And so it has a lot to do with their identity. It has a lot to do with how they view God. It has a lot to do with the reputation of God to the nations around them. And so there were very grave consequences for them to break the Sabbath. And so Jesus comes along. What happens with Jesus and the Sabbath? Well, he enters into a religious culture uh, that basically viewed being right with God by keeping the rules, right? If you kept the rules, you were right with God. And there is a lot of them, religious leaders, who says if keeping the rules in the Old Testament make you right with God, let's even make more rules about how to keep the rules, and then you'll even be more right with God. And so Jesus enters into this, and there's six occasions in the Gospels where Jesus did things on the Sabbath that they considered violations of the Sabbath. Now the question is, did Jesus come and was he restoring the Sabbath back to what it had been in the Old Testament? Or was the Sabbath going to be replaced with something greater than the Sabbath? Even as he took the Passover supper and replaced it with the Lord's Supper. Now certainly he confronted their hypocrisy and their works righteousness. Mark 2.27 During one of these conflicts, he said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And you've turned it upside down so that keeping the Sabbath isn't a blessing, it's a burden. It's no longer the blessing of living in the rhythm that God created for you. It's no longer being able to rule in his image and likeness for your sake and the your children and the people who work in your house and, uh, and the animals. And it's no longer a time to say, wow, God, wow, God, if it weren't for your redemption, I'd still be a slave. I'd have to be working seven days a week and have no freedom over how I governed my life and my family. Wow, God. And certainly he was called to do that. But I do believe that he was, he was, in fact, saying the Sabbath is going to be replaced by something greater. Something greater. And so turn over to Matthew 28. Matthew 28. And then we'll go over to John 20. Jesus has lived his years completed his three-plus years of ministry. Matthew 28 or 27, he has been crucified on Friday. And we know that because his body had to be taken down from the cross not to violate the Jewish Sabbath that began at sundown on Friday and went through sundown on Saturday. It's considered a desecration of the Sabbath for a body to be hanging on the cross in their in you know, on a cross in their midst. And so he's taken down from the cross before the Sabbath begins, and he spends that Sabbath. Now think about this. He spent that Sabbath ceasing from the work 
of redemption because it had been fully completed. Isn't that cool? Just as God did in the creation of the six days and he rested, not because he was tired, but because it was finished. Jesus Christ spent the Sabbath. We know nothing about him. He rested on that Sabbath because the all of redemption was completed. Nothing else to add to that. And so in Matthew 28, verse 1, now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave, and behold, a severe earthquake had occurred. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. Now we're told in Luke, for example, that uh, later on that day, there's two followers of his that were headed back home to Emmaus, and Jesus comes alongside them. They can't tell who he is. They are so disillusioned. They tell him, you know, this guy that we thought was the Messiah, he did all kinds of miracles. He's been crucified. And, you know, this morning, some ladies came and told us that he'd been raised from the dead, but eh, I don't know what to make of that. I don't think they believed him, to be honest with you. And it says that Jesus began with the law and the prophets, and he proclaimed himself in all of that. Ooh, wouldn't that have been a great sermon? And then they recognized him in the breaking of the bread, and Jesus disappeared. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us somewhere along the way, he went and met Peter. But go over to John, John 20. Verse 19. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed him the, them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, 
they have been retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, there is no appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ between the first day and the next Sunday, if you will, the next first day of the week. We don't know of any appearances there. So he appears to the group on the Sunday night, and this one is eight days later. The next Sunday night, his disciples, well, we call Sunday anyway, were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came to the doors, having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands. Reach here with your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. So what's going on here? Jesus by his personal example and by his presence changes the day of significance. Now, it makes it a little bit tricky because you don't see a new command, you don't see new instructions because he's God present and he changes the Sabbath to the first day of the week. The first day of the week on Sunday. He does this by his appearance to them. He does it. I mean, think about the things that happens. He greets them. He preaches to them. He teaches them. He fellowships with them. And he tells them, go tell other people. As the Father has sent me, so I now send you. He commissions them. All of that happens by Jesus personally on that first day. Now go over to Acts chapter 2. And we're going to follow this through into the church age real quickly. Acts chapter 2, verse 1, and the day of Pentecost had come. The day of Pentecost was Sunday. It was the first day of the week. What happens on this first day of the week? The Holy Spirit comes and takes up his indwelling presence in those who were followers of Jesus Peter leads the way in proclaiming the gospel. There's a lot of people who get convicted by the Spirit, ask him what they should do. He tells them to repent and to begin to follow the Lord and, um, and to do all of that. Go down to verse 42. Uh, let's do 41 and 42. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And so there was four elements of their gatherings. There was uh, the apostles' teaching. They didn't have the New Testament yet. And so there was preaching and teaching from the Scriptures. That would be what we say today. There was fellowship amongst believers. There's the breaking of bread. Typically, people understand that to be a reference to the Lord's Supper and to prayer. 
And it seems that this was the regular practice of the church from then on. From then on. And we pick this up in a couple of places. Turn over to Acts chapter 20, verse 7. Paul is on one of his missionary journeys. And he comes to a city called Troas. Verse 7, on the what day of the week? First day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. We have this crazy story of Eutychus. Man, be careful if you fall asleep in church. I guess the point is, just make sure you're not going to fall out of a window and kill yourself. Although that's not a bad deal if the Apostle Paul is around. Because he died and came back to life. That was quite a church service. You wouldn't want to miss that one. <laughs> but, but when did it happen? It almost takes it for granted when it happened. The first day of the week. It doesn't even make a big point out of it. It's just kind of like this is what happens on the first day of the week. Go over to 1 Corinthians 16. And so he's writing to the church at Corinth about their financial giving. 1 Corinthians 16. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also, on the what day of the week? First day of the week, each of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. And so, again, it's just kind of taken for granted that this is when the believers gather together. doesn't mean they didn't meet other times, but this is when believers gathered together uh, for preaching and teaching, for fellowship, for prayer, for celebrating the Lord's Supper. Paul says this is when you bring your gifts and you do it on a regular basis so that when he came through, it would all be ready for him to take. One more reference. Uh, Let's go to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1. And we've just gone from Genesis to Revelation. That's pretty quick, huh? Hope you think so anyway. Revelation chapter 1. And the Apostle John, as he gets this revelation of who Jesus Christ is, in a uniqueness and a fullness about the end times, says in verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. Now, sometimes the Lord's day refers to the eschatological day when the Lord wraps everything up. This is actually, in the Greek, a different phrase. And he's actually setting the day of the week. Now, you can't find in here that this was the first day of the week. But the Apostle John wrote this about 96 AD. And the early church fathers, many of them who were peers with John and followed right after John, it was their normal expression for Sundays to be the Lord's day. And so it seems pretty obvious that that became the term for Sunday 
the first day of the week was the Lord's day. So how do we want to wrap all this up? Well, let me just say a couple kind of concluding things. Sunday, interestingly, is never called the Sabbath. It's never called the Sabbath. Um, It's called the first day of the week. It's called the Lord's Day, especially in history. And even um, around the world, the bodies of Christ tend to meet on the Lord's Day. They meet on the first day of the week. Now, I read in one place, and I just didn't have time to track this down, that the five-day work week uh, came into existence so that people could rest on the seventh day, Saturday, and then worship on the seventh day. Camilla told me that Henry Ford is the one who established the five-day work week so the Jews didn't have to work on their holy day and the Christians didn't have to work on theirs. So if you're one who loves to track these down, there's some probably doctoral dissertation written out there, but I didn't have time to track it down. Uh, there's, there's some reason how societies with Judeo-Christian roots uh, function on the cycle that we do. Now, it's not true in many parts of the world. In Indonesia, Sunday is a work day, just like every other day of the week. And so I can remember doing church services in Indonesia, and we would do them at 6.30 in the morning so that the people could go to work. And I just sometimes wonder if the reason that it's never referred to as the Sabbath is the Sabbath was intended for God's people who had a theocracy who were to control their culture, and they could establish a day off, and they were commanded to do that. But with the church, the church is to be sent out into the different cultures of the world. And when you go out into different cultures of the world, you can't make it happen that you have a full day off on the first day of the week. That doesn't stop you from making it your primary day of worship. It doesn't stop us from gathering together. The reason we have such freedom here is because of America's Judeo-Christian roots. But the church, as it gathers in most parts of the world, they don't have that freedom. Sunday still is their Lord's day, and they come. And why do they come? They come to hear the word preached, they come to pray, they come to fellowship, they come to share the Lord's Supper, they come to bring their money, they come to reestablish the rhythm in their life of worshiping God, they come to to reestablish his rule in their life, they come to remember that they were once slaves and now they're free in Christ, they don't have to work to earn the merit and the favor of God but they're called then to go out into their workplaces and to be a light for the gospel of Christ. And so, is the Sabbath a bad name for Sunday? Uh, It's not a bad name, but it's probably not the most helpful. The Lord's Day is probably a much better way and term by which to call Sundays when we gather together. Okay, let's go back to Hebrews and wrap this thing up because this is where we started. And so what does it mean when the writer to Hebrews says, so there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God? 
why would he use the word Sabbath there? It's the only use. He's using it because he's writing to who? Jews. And he's writing to Jews who are tending to move away from the freedoms that they have in Christ and resting in Christ and going back to legalistic ways of being right with God. And he's saying to them, don't do it. Don't move back into slavery. You know how that Sabbath rest was for the people of Israel in the Old Testament? We have a Sabbath rest in Christ. He's not saying go back to worshiping on Saturday. He's saying when you gather together on the Lord's day and when you live each day, live in the rest that Christ has called us to. Let's read this together. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And so we gather each Sunday to remind ourselves of the rhythm that God puts into our life that is a rhythm that we function out of rest. We function out of a rest of our relationship with God being settled forever by Christ. And we're going to remind ourselves of that. And we gather together to remind ourselves that we get to rule in the image and likeness of God. And we gather together to remember, man, we've been released from slavery and we are free in Christ. So the men are going to get ready to service the Lord's Supper. But as we come to the Lord's table this morning, how are you doing in your rhythm and functioning out of the rest that you have in Christ. And as we were led through in the first part of the service, no matter what your circumstances are, no matter what your circumstances are, is your rhythm functioning out of the rest of a beautiful, full relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and in His providence and in His provision for all that you need in life? And how are you doing living in his rule and his image and likeness? How are the people around you, the people in your own home, the people you're working with, are they experiencing the rule of Christ through you? You don't have anything to prove to them. You can live in the finished work of Christ and grow to live in the rule of Christ and bring the rest of Christ into all of your relationships. And oh, how this is a beautiful reminder that this wasn't always true. We used to be slaves, and we couldn't function out of the rest. We couldn't function out of the rule of God in our life. We were slaves, slaves to sin, slaves to Satan. So if you know Christ, if you're a follower of his, it's best you know there's no sin that you're saying, Christ, you can't have this one. I want to encourage you to go ahead and take a piece of the bread and the cup as it passes by. Hang on to it, and we'll all partake together to remind us that this is our common rest in Christ. Amen.